I don't know, maybe I believe too much in the goodness of humanity, but I don't think it would be so rampant if people were loved and if people felt connected and if people felt supported, you know, and it's the scarcity and this lack of understanding in relationship to the land that causes this vociferous appetite to consume and extract and accumulate. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Earth podcast, where we speak to creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are creating the world we want to live in. I'm your host, Will Sachs. Welcome back. Let's begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is episode number four in our ongoing series on psychedelic healing. I hope you are learning as much as I am. This has been a real journey of discovery for me from talking to Rick Doblin in our first episode in this series about the works that MAPS is doing with MDMA to sharing my own experience in episode two of a psychedelic therapy session, then talking to Ben DeLuna from ICERS and all the work they're doing around ayahuasca. And today, continuing on the journey with Sophia Rocklin, who I met down in Peru when I was down there a couple months ago at Temple of the Way of Light. Sophia has just published a book called When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. This book is like a tour through the history of ayahuasca, through the cultural impact that it's having globally at this point and really fascinating. Sophia is also an anthropologist and nonprofit organizer working with environmental rights organizations, currently the Permaculture Program with Shaikuni Institute, which is a sister organization of the Temple of the Way of Light, the ayahuasca center that I went down to in Peru. And they're doing incredible stuff. They're working with indigenous communities to help them regenerate the land down there that's in many cases been under attack from Western consumerism, really, and uh, and Western companies. So we talk about a whole lot of different stuff in this conversation. We talk about what exactly is ayahuasca, in case you aren't familiar. Also, what it is from a cultural perspective, how people can think about it and the force that it's having globally. And we talk about this ongoing theme that's showing itself of reconnecting with ourselves, with each other, and with the land as being a crucial element of healing and spirituality, and ayahuasca as being a potential gateway to having that happen on a broad scale. We talk about neo-shamanism and how Sophia is about to go on a tour around the country talking about plant medicines to places like Kansas City, Georgia, and other locations in the South, and also all over the United States. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sophia Rocklin. Hey guys, one more thing before we start the interview. I want you to let you know that this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Get Funded. Get Funded is the program I started to get 100 world-changing companies funded, as the name might suggest. If you're building something awesome and you need capital and you're thinking about raising private capital, uh, go to www.foundersgetfunded.com, www.foundersgetfunded.com and check it out. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. All right, Sophia, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
It's great to see you again and to be chatting with you again after our experience in Peru a couple months ago. Yes, less ambient noise and creatures and... Way less jungle. <laughs> less jungle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I miss the jungle. I made some audio recordings of it, actually, and I've, I've listened to them sometimes when I'm meditating, and it really does have its own force and power. Uh-huh. Yeah, big time. Yeah, it's, oh, it's an amazing place. I always think the jungle itself, like the sounds of the jungle are working on you on like a cellular level. <laughs> 100%. All those different beings... Yeah, yeah, for sure. I also took a few audio recordings of myself like singing and I was sitting in the same place every day and singing every day, but at different times of day. And then when I play those back, there's just like a whole different soundtrack in the background, like different creatures, different insects, different winds blowing. It's really amazing how much it changes. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like that was a big part of the experience. And I've talked about my experience a little bit on the show, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll talk about it more today. But I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what's it like to be down there as someone who, who's done this now and you've written the book and you've been studying ayahuasca culture and, and the culture around psychedelic plants? Like, what is it like to be down there and have a group of us initiates, you know, come in and spend a week or two weeks or, or longer down there and, and witness that kind of thing? I mean, you know, it changes, obviously, the weather changes, moods change, perceptions change. But I think overwhelmingly, and I swear this isn't like an endorsement, but I just, it's like every time I'm fairly convinced that we're at some kind of like a wizard boot camp or like some kind of magic school, <laughs> you know, like people come in a little bit closed, a little pale, not so in vibe. And it's amazing just within a couple of days, really, you start to see this like indescribable kind of opening energy that begins to happen and people begin to soften and they begin to look at each other in the eyes and there's just a transformation happening. And for me to see that over and over again is really like a testament to the space that's created there, you know, and not only the space, but that the medicine and the context and just like the whole, the whole thing. It's very touching, really an honor to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And so I've talked a little bit about ayahuasca on this show. This is part of the series that we're currently doing on psychedelic healing. And I think a lot of my listeners may not be familiar with ayahuasca. So I would love to give you an opportunity based on your experience to tell us or answer the question in, in your understanding, what is ayahuasca? What is ayahuasca? Great. Well, I did write a whole book on this subject. Um, <laughs> there are many different angles that you can approach it from. So we'll start with the basic material components. Ayahuasca is a psychoactive brew or like a beverage that's made in the Amazon rainforest traditionally. And it's made from two different plants, usually. So that first plant that we're using is called Benisteriopsis capi, or sometimes just referred to as ayahuasca. And it's a beautiful vine, or a liana, and it grows in these gorgeous double helices, like a DNA kind of tendriling up a different tree. And that ayahuasca vine is then combined with leaves, which are colloquially called like chacruna. So there's the ayahuasca and the chacruna. And the chacruna contains NNDMT. And that's usually the admixture that you'll find in the Peruvian Amazon. But in the Ecuadorian Amazon and in Colombia, it's sometimes a different plant called Diplopterus cabrerana, which also contains DMT. So when you combine these two plants together, something pretty magical happens. 
you can eat a whole salad of DMT leaves. Like I could go into the forest and make myself a delicious medley of different, you know, DMT plants and nothing would happen. And that is because we have an enzyme in our gut called monoamine oxidase. I hope you don't mind I'm going too much. Into no, it's great. <laughs> this is a basic step-by-step -step and then we'll go culturally. So we have an enzyme in our gut called monoamine oxidase. So for anybody taking antidepressants, you may have heard of MAOIs. So those are called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So monoamine oxidase basically allows for the DMT or whatever other psychoactive tryptamines we may be eating to actually just be digested through the intestines and out the other end. Now, when you combine it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, like the vine. So the vine inhibits those enzymes from digesting the DMT. So the DMT is in the gut, and then it passes through the bloodstream and past the blood-brain barrier. And when it goes into this blood-brain barrier, the DMT molecules actually resemble serotonin. So they fit, they kind of click into the serotonin receptors, kind of like Tetris blocks or like a car in a parking lot or something, just doop, goes right there. And serotonin is a monoamine neurotransmitter that basically modulates a bunch of different responses we have, like feelings of well-being, you know, memory, cognition, these sorts of things, happiness. And that's very basically the chemistry of ayahuasca. And it's more complicated than that, but that's like the alchemy or the magic, that these two things together don't do anything alone, really, but when you combine them, you have this amazing, powerful, psychoactive journey. And so this journey and this concoction has been prepared and observed by, you know, traditionally indigenous communities throughout the Amazon basin. And there's a huge, huge diversity and diaspora of ayahuasca using cultures. I'm looking at a map now of, of the Amazon and actually like the distance between the farthest indigenous cultures that use ayahuasca is as wide as New York to Colorado. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's thousands and thousands of miles yeah. And within that, like to, to an untrained Western eye, it would just seem like green, you know, like green forest. But actually what you have are hundreds of different microclimates and different, you know, biomes and different creatures and cultures and languages that are spoken and worldviews and perspectives and ways of using ayahuasca. So ayahuasca practice culture is actually very diverse. And traditionally throughout the Amazon basin, you know, what I know, what I've researched and what other people have told me is that ayahuasca has been used for and prepared for a diversity of different like reasons, everything from healing, like, you know, maybe we did at the Temple of the Way of Light, healing, cleaning, aligning. But traditionally, it was used to actually heighten senses, to prepare hunters for divining the location of game and wild animals. Even I've read like divining the location of cheating lovers and things like that. And even nefarious purposes like sorcery and witchcraft and, you know, casting spells on people and having battles in the cosmic arenas. So yeah, we talk about ayahuasca today as a kind of an amazing healing medicine, but you know, culturally and historically, it's actually very diverse. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, one of the big takeaways from my experience coming down to Peru was how connected the experience of ayahuasca that I had and that we had, how connected it was to the people, to the land, to 
nature. You know, my experience was very much about connecting to nature and communing with this plant. Mm. And I'm really happy that I was able to have that experience because had I done it a mile from my house, which I found out this summer that there's ayahuasca ceremonies that are happening a mile from our house here in Boulder, Colorado, just down the road at a yoga studio. And there's just such a range of experiences that one can have with this plant, with this substance, with this medicine. Do you think that that's important for people to feel that connection with something other than the DMT? Oh, interesting. So, I mean, I think there are different strokes for different folks at this point. I'm no longer a purist about the situation I once was. (laughs) But I also realize, you know, going to the Amazon and doing these things is absolutely a privilege that's not available to everyone. But yeah, I mean, I think that you know, different healers have different perspectives on the subject. They'll say that the ayahuasca doesn't like to travel too far away from home, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. While others actually have a more enchanted perspective, ayahuasca as a kind of chemical SOS that's attempting to wake up Western civilization and connect it to nature once more. So, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. And yeah, I think from my perspective, I like to say that it's never just ayahuasca. You know, and if you're looking at it as just ayahuasca, you're kind of, I don't think throwing the baby out of the bathwater is the right expression, but you know, you're not really appreciating the actual complexity and the beauty of what a diverse and sort of complex and sophisticated ecosystem ayahuasca really is. Because ayahuasca is a brew and it's actually two plants. And those two plants come from different ecosystems. And the ayahuasca is activated through sound and song. And through the song and sound, you know, that comes from lineages of different memory and cultural practices, ritual, space, smell, all of these different elements, intention are actively weaving into the potential of the ayahuasca experience. So when you really just talk about it like ayahuasca on its own, you know, like a basement shaman making it (laughs) and taking it and then that's it. I just feel like you're kind of missing something. You're missing everything. (laughs) Yeah. Humble perspective. (laughs) There's a whole culture, right, that's developed. And you go into that in the book of traditional ways of sitting with this substance, with song and ceremony, and then these neo-shamanistic culture that's being created. Like, what's your view having written this book now on... The people doing ceremonies, you know, at the yoga studio near our house here or in lofts in Soho, you know, how do you think about all that? Like, is it positive? Yeah, again, I think that it is so dependent upon the person who's serving and the crew that they roll with. I mean, again, you probably read in my book, like I was kind of exploring different ayahuasca contexts from the Bushwick basements to the yoga studios to the teepees and the futuristic penthouses and all of that stuff. And I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's not so much about where you actually are, rather than knowing that, you know, the healers that you're working with come from integrity, they work from a lineage, they work with respect and with reciprocity for their landscapes and the people that they learned from. So it's not an extractive practice, and that they're, you know, taking really good care. And I mean, unfortunately, there is a bit of a dynamic where as there is an increased interest in ayahuasca, there's kind of like a turnover aspect, right? Like shamans are not going to be able to remember everyone's name. So they can really only scan people's energy and work from there. Does it matter if you know the person's name and their story? It's debatable, you know, because some people would say that that's not their job. They're not here to like mommy you. They're just here to work on a very energetic level. But then again, 
a collaborator and friend of mine, his name is Jorge Huachumac. He's a vegetalista, which means he works with, you know, vegetal matter. It's like Amazonian folk medicine. And he once said, like, more or less, you know, there's something really wrong about a shaman going in and shaking your hand five minutes before the ceremony and not knowing your name or your story or anything. So, yeah, I think it's a really case-by-case situation. But generally, I mean, for the ayahuasca curious and for people who are just beginning to navigate this territory, you already, I think, get a good read from the facilitators that you may speak with over the phone and really, you know, are they asking thoughtful questions? Are they taking their time with you? and being very, very diligent and thorough with their intake process. These are things that are really important to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting for me to look back at how scared I was Mm. of ayahuasca because I probably heard about it four or five years ago. And I had this fear, this quite intense fear for a number of years until I eventually sat with some other medicines and had incredible experiences. And then at some point felt, okay, I'm ready for this one. Mm -hmm. And now looking back on it, the fear seems quaint and bizarre to me even because this is a plant. It grows in nature. I was able to meet the plant when I was in Hawaii last year and, and that helped to send the fear away. But I think our society has this fear writ large for psychoactive substances. And I was definitely a personification of that. And now on the other side, they seem like such a teacher and such a guide, and really part of our birthright as humans, because we've been using these substances for 5,000, 10,000 years, as far back as recorded history, as I've dug into this and learned about that. So what do you think is the potential of this ayahuasca boom or this psychedelic renaissance? Hmm. Well, I want to go back to the fear part, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Because I think fear is a really beautiful teacher, you know, and even... For myself, I've been in the triple digits of ayahuasca ceremonies by now, you know, and it's like fear is always there and fear comes in layers. And of course, there is like a superimposed fear that we inherit culturally. And then the ayahuasca starts to move through your layers of fear that come like instinctually and ancestrally and in a very real and um, almost unlanguageable kind of way. So if you do experience fear in the future, (laughs) you know, if you do continue to work with these practices, it's completely a part of it. You know, if anything, I think it's integral to it. The fear is a, the fear is a friend here. So the question was about the psychedelic Renaissance at large and kind of potential for it. Was that? Yeah. I mean, I digging back into the fear though, for a second, Yeah, yeah. you know, looking back, some of the thoughts I had was like, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) You know, even though I had friends who have sat with ayahuasca and spoke highly of the experience and said it was helpful for their lives and for their development. So looking back on that fear, now the way I look back on it is, oh, there was actually feelings in my body that I wasn't ready to feel yet. Like I wasn't ready to go there yet. And when I was ready to go there and go into my body and feel those emotions and feel those feelings then I consciously had the insight, oh, I should go sit with ayahuasca. I think I'm ready. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's fascinating to think about because what that shows me is that before when I was experiencing the fear, my thoughts were being influenced by things in my body that I wasn't aware of. And I think that's really what trauma is and how it exists in our culture. Mm. So is that how you see ayahuasca as a way to 
to liberate us from the stuff that we've been carrying around subconsciously programmed by our culture? <laughs> I mean, at this point, I don't even know what I see I was. <laughs> it's funny because I have this intellectual relationship with it and this cultural relationship, and then there's my personal relationship with it. And so while my you know, intellectual and public relationship with it, like speaking to you now and writing about it, you know, when you're writing and when you're putting things in language, it sort of requires a sense of like commitment to what you're saying versus in my own personal practice, it's changing all the time. So, yeah, but I do feel like in my own experiences without saying too much, there comes a point when, I mean, you're always working on your personal stuff, right? Like life happens, hearts are broken and joy comes and goes and things are always happening. And there's always like updates to work through. But I've definitely had moments where I was experiencing pain and memory that were not of this lifetime or mine necessarily. It's almost like I was experiencing the pain of the loss of a child or of the pain of women in Europe during famine, you know, like these civilizational kind of imprints that are in our body and in our bones and in our cellular memory. And that I believe more than ever now. I never had a very strong belief or I'm not really trained in studying cellular memory or what people call it, right? But on an intuitive level, I do definitely feel like we carry things with us and we carry patterns. And my maestro actually, you know, he recently said that we don't do this work for ourselves alone. We do it for our ancestors and we do it for the future. We're stopping the patterns with us and we're liberating the future from that pain and the strife and the patterns that our ancestors continue to carry on, you know? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because as part of this series, I've been studying psychedelic healing. And as I mentioned, discovered that we've been using these substances as humans for thousands and thousands of years as part of almost every culture and tradition throughout the world. And then in the last, you know, call it few hundred years or just even a few decades with the, the war on drugs, all of a sudden these practices that have been deeply integrated into shamanism and healing and and rejuvenating us by connecting us to source and spirit have been cut off. So it's almost like we got a backlog of all this societal trauma that needs to get worked through. And I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I've had similar experiences of going back to being in a war, you know, I've never been in a war and feeling the pain of other generations, like feeling all the pain of humanity. And yeah, it's like we have a backlog in order to in order to totally. get current almost. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that backlog could just be like of the last 12 generations of industrial civilization, or it could go back even farther to like, God knows when. I mean, life is suffering as they say, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest download that I got recently too, actually from the plants and the medicine and working in these traditions. It's like, Joy is so underrated and like bringing happiness and lightness and song and color into all of this work is vital, you know, and we take our healing so seriously. And when you go into hospitals and doctors and all these places, they're very somber and clinical, you know, and it's like, we don't have this approach to healing and to getting well and celebrating like the party it should be, you know. 
and different indigenous communities celebrate it differently. But I think people in Brazil are probably like the masters at this, you know, I was like looking over at them from Peru, like they're having the parties, they're dancing, they're singing. And, you know, it's just a life. If you have any opportunity for happiness, then that's where happiness can come in. And it's not like a joke. It's like, it's a serious thing. Like we it's have a serious to be, part of it. We must be happy. You know, <laughs> I once heard um, a friend of mine, his elder said, es tu decreto ser feliz, which means it is your decree to be happy. And I love that. <laughs> I love that too. It's your decree, royal decree to be happy. Oh, that's so great because I know I'm guilty of this too. I do take healing. It's, it's serious business, right? You go pay your therapist and like... I'm going to um, heal now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and one of the things that struck me in Peru at Temple of the Way of Light was the healers had so much lightness to them and so much laughter. And it's one of the things that I remember the most and I've reflected on many times since coming back is the amount of laughter that existed while they were doing their work. You got to, you got to, you got to. That's the you gotta, right? Yeah, How could you otherwise? Yeah, I know. There have been a few times where I'm being worked on. I'm being like sung to one of the healers. And then, you know, I'm in this like intense drama of myself or whatever. And then there's like a little chuckle, you know, and that chuckle <laughs> is like the glimmering salvation at the end of the tunnel. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's the opening, right? Like laughter is the opening. It opens reality in a way. Yeah. That brings me to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is you talk in the book about religion by doctrine versus religion by experience. And that ayahuasca spread throughout the earth at this point is giving people access to a new kind of spirituality or religion, which is born out of experience versus out of a book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was really interesting to me because it gives access to people who may not resonate with any kind of religion. Mm -hmm. So it gives an experience. Can you talk a bit about that and, and what you see the potential is of that shift to experiential religion? Yeah, that's, I love that point. I think when looking at any of these plant medicines, you're looking at a, a long, long lineage of, of mysticism, right? And, and a distinction that people make between religion or organized religion and mysticism is how one is connecting to the divine. In organized religions, typically there's like a, an intermediary or a medium, right? And that person could be, you know, the clergy or the priest or the pope. I don't I mean, I'm, I'm just pointing to Christianity and Catholicism. But, you know, there's somebody who holds the keys to the gates of heaven. And there were language barriers too. Like Latin was the language of those of the learned and those who didn't write or those who were illiterate didn't have access to God. So they would need to go to somebody. And, you know, if you're talking about that, think about how power then can be structured and societies and civilizations are, you know, reliant upon the hierarchy of connection to religious bodies and to, and to God themselves. God is, I don't know about the gender thing with God, but anyway... <laughs> And now going to mysticism, you know, mysticism and mystical traditions have been strategically and historically stamped out because of how threatening they are really to the formation of these civilizations and to the power structures that hold these things together. So when looking at shamanism or even witches, people who have a relationship to land, right? That's all it is, really. It's people who have a portal of 
access to divinity, to higher calling, to their own true authority, right? That's what it is. The word religion comes from etymologically like religio, which means to be chained to, which is interesting, like to be. So it's really the question of who are you chained to or what do you tie yourself to? So when you have these mystics who tie themselves not to a figurehead of a person, but to, you know, the plant who then allows access to their own divinity, that's when things become quite interesting. And I think that, you know, in in the United States especially, we have a growing movement called SBNRs, which means spiritual but not religious. Right. (laughs) You can look that up on Pew Forum. And, and it's true, you know, because people are realizing, that, I mean, for many different reasons, they're disenchanted and disillusioned by the legacy and the offerings of organized religions. And this is in many ways like a homecoming for us, you know, working with these plants and these traditions is that we have a fairly unmediated access to whatever it is that is divine for us and, and our own higher selves and our own true callings. And it's through the plants. And, you know, here we are on earth and the plants are our gift to work with, you know, and in return, we be kind to the plants. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And how could it be any other way now in retrospect, thinking about, well, where is divinity except in nature all around us in life itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's been the greatest thing. There's like, for me, it's really, I realized, and I think that this is for many people who work with ayahuasca, like a lot of the things that we come to asking for help with are issues like anxiety and depression and eating disorders and sexual frustrations and these things that are kind of like nebulous, but are ever present, you know, like they don't have a point and they don't have a name and, and biomedicine can give it a name and they can give it a pill. And I'm not bashing biomedicine. I think it's amazing at many things, but in these cases, I think what we're seeing here are widespread ailments that are caused by issues in the way that we organize ourselves um, structurally and societally and very much about our disconnection to nature. And what that means really is our disconnection from what it is to be on this earth, you know, and our abuse of this earth. It's like crazy. So, I mean, you know, a friend and colleague of mine, Sam Gandhi, you can look his work up. He does amazing work with nature relatedness and psychedelics. And I definitely align with that, you know, that stream of consciousness and that research. It's just like totally the direction, I think, because if we continue to work with psychedelics and I mean, now we see a lot of widespread interest, you know, from venture capital and from big invest. I mean, all of this stuff, it's like psychedelics are on the rise, just like cannabis was and is. But as long as we continue to heal with psychedelics in the same framework from the individual perspective, without reforming the way that we work, like in the temple, for example, in community with nature, peer supported groups and and song and dance and that whole orchestra and symphony of, of ayahuasca that we described we're missing the point, you know, we're not getting it. And we're not really, really transforming on a structural level in a way that's going to be sustainable and regenerative. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, just to hammer that home, the image of someone like drinking ayahuasca in some dystopian future in a hospital room alone, right, you know, with a clipboard and a diagnosis on it of with a bunch of letters, that feels scary to me. Yeah, well, it's the same thing. It's like, get well, don't have fun, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. So there's much work to be done there. And I think for anybody, you know, exploring psychedelic 
business or entrepreneurship or whatever, it would be my wholehearted recommendation and hope that one kind of explores ways to weave in, you know, cool and fun and collaborative and just new and innovative ways to like hack the healthcare system, you know, because things need to transform radically. It's not just the pill. It's not just the ayahuasca. It's like, it's so much more than that. Yeah, I mean, it's sad to look at the American healthcare system. I grew up in Canada, so we have different challenges in Canada. Canada but you. <laughs> <laughs> but the realization I've come to is that we've taken the spirituality out of health, mm. out of healthcare. And I think that's one of the big mistakes. Another big mistake is separating mind from body. Mm. And so now we end up with this system that's that's really at a dead end for a lot of people who who feel that there's something more to life. There's some element of themselves they want to express and their doctor has a pill that is marginally effective. So we've reached this dead end, in my opinion. And, yeah. you know, it's sad, but it's also an opportunity that the psychedelic renaissance seems to be an, an expression of that we can reconnect and find our health through connecting to others, connecting to nature, connecting to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the full cycle. As Buckminster Fuller said, utopia or bust. <laughs> I actually don't know if he's, I think he said that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so what is that utopia in your view now having, you know, where are we headed? There is, I mean, I think utopia has no end point. You know, it's interesting. When, who? I think a couple of anarchist philosophers who who talk about this, like, this pursuit for utopia is almost like an ever elusive con it's a feeling in the heart and it, there is no destination, but it's about that spirit of creativity and desire and love to create something beautiful. So my utopia has no destination, but it's a feeling, you know, and it's a feeling that I get glimpses of when I'm working in, for example, the jungle, you know, in intercultural collaboration. And when I'm translating from maybe some Shipibo to Spanish to English, and we're all laughing together, and we're all, you know, looking at somebody's foot and picking insects out of it, and like talking about what plants to use, and then sharing different stories about it. I mean, that's utopia for me, you know, just like observing and playing with the human body and mixing around different perspectives and landscapes in a way that's like fun and collaborative and productive. And and I'm very lucky to have actually many moments of that utopia in my life. You know, it's, it's intersectional, it's diverse, it's so colorful and fun. I mean, and on a broader scale, yeah, I would be integrating that on a structural level in, in our Western structures. So that would be you know, very basically, and I think what many people are working towards is more diverse, you know, boards and advisory teams and just people in leadership positions. And that requires a lot of patience, to be honest, you know, I mean, for myself, I work in an intercultural team. And we just people just don't function on the same timeline (laughs) as like hyper caffeinated Westerners, you know, (laughs) so like, how do you be like, we need to turn this thing in and it just it's difficult sometimes, but, you know, there's a lot to be gained in that patience. And so, oh, yeah, so the utopia is near and dear and always far away, but I wouldn't want it to be anywhere else because that's what keeps the life going. You know, I once read something amazing. How did it go? It was like, be grateful for your discontent, for discontent creates the divine energy to create or something like that. 
That wasn't yeah. it. But you know what I mean? Like be yeah. grateful for that always wanting feeling because it actually is like, that's where the chi and the sea and the creativity is born from. You know, it's that reaching gesture that like that lunging forward that allows the light to shine in and us to be vulnerable mm. and like explore. Yeah. I love that. I'm struck with the absence of flying cars and space stations and, you know, artificial intelligence plugged into our brains in your version of utopia. And I like the Einstein quote that our technology has exceeded our humanity. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. And as I've been doing this series on psychedelic healing and, and having my own experiences, it seems to me that ayahuasca has the potential to catch us up on the humanity side and that technology, more technology, it hasn't saved us yet. I mean, it was supposed to, the nuclear age was supposed to save us, the electronic age, the computer age, they were all supposed to provide us with a utopia where nobody had to work anymore and nobody and people live forever and it's just not happening. So it seems like something else has to... Yeah has to evolve us in a different way. Totally. Hey, everybody. I thought I'd do a little PSA here just in the middle of the interview. There are a few things I just want to touch on. First of all, if you're listening to these episodes on psychedelic healing and you're interested to learn more about ayahuasca in particular, the book is When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. You can check the show notes. There'll be a link there to get the book. I recommend it. It's by Daniel Pinchbeck and Sophia. And uh, another PSA, the Temple of the Way of Light is also linked in the show notes if you're interested and want to learn more about the work of the temple as well as the Shaikuni Institute it is also linked in the show notes. If you're listening to this and you want to do something about uh, deforestation in the Amazon or commodification of ayahuasca, reconnecting with traditional communities in the land, definitely check out Shaikuni Institute. There's a, a link there. You can make a donation and be a part of the reforestation efforts. So now back to the show. I have another Einstein quote to retort, <laughs> which is my new, I think yeah. it's my new favorite quote. There's a designer, Neri Oxman, and she, I heard it from her first. Einstein said, there are two ways to look at the world. You could look at it like everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle, you know? And for me, I make that choice every day to see everything as a miracle. And for me, it's those technologies and tools, including spiritual technologies like ayahuasca, that are the allies in helping us realize the miraculousness of everything and to just be so grateful and, and careful with our environment and, and this life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Point taken. Yes. I love that. Thank you. Everything is a miracle. Everything is a miracle, right? Even my phone, if I use it correctly. It's pretty miraculous. It is miraculous, actually. You know, totally. you wake up from ayahuasca and you're like, what the heck is this? You're like, even you're going to post it and you're like, my God, like, wow, what a, a feat of the human mind. It's All of human knowledge in the palm of my hand. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about Shaikuni. Let's talk about Shaikuni. Can you tell us about Shaikuni? And yeah, and then, and then we'll talk about how you came to become involved and, and what the goals are. Yeah, my pleasure. So Shaikuni is, I work with Shaikuni. I'm program manager there. And it's a nonprofit organization that's based in the Peruvian Amazon. And it works in sisterhood or in partnership with the Temple of the Way of Light, which is the ayahuasca retreat center that we were at. And Chaikuni in Shipibo, so the Shipibo are a, an indigenous community that live in Peru, 
Chaikuni means the spirit of the forest. So it's the spirit of the Forest Institute. And Chaikuni was born from, you know, the founder's vision to marry together this personal work that we do with ayahuasca and plant medicine, together with earth healing, you know, really making sure that we close that loop, like we were talking about earlier, like making sure that we're not just working on ourselves, but it's all about reciprocity and interconnection. And so from this vision, Chaikuni works in three areas. Uh, the areas are intercultural education. So that means, you know, supporting and advocating for maybe indigenous languages to be spoken in schools as well as Spanish. It works in environmental rights and nature rights. And then it works in the area that I'm most involved with, which is permaculture. So permaculture, for those of you who don't know, means permanent agriculture. And what we do there is really work together with communities near the Iquitos region, innovating new and not only sustainable, but regenerative ways to work with land. You know, I'm sure you heard about the fires in the Amazon. Yeah. Actually, there's nothing new about fires in the Amazon, interestingly. So what, what was so sensational was the scale of the fires, but... 2.2 billion people on earth practice an agricultural method known as slash and burn or Swidden agriculture. And that's basically, you know, a land management technique where you cut trees and land and shrubs or whatever, burn it down. And then that ash is actually really, really nice to grow crops short term. So they'll plant staple crops like yucca or plantain and that works for a few cycles. They say anywhere from three to five, which is generous. But then after, you know, burning that many times, all of the microorganisms in the soil die and eventually the land is degraded. So what happens now in the Amazon is as we see sort of corporations and different extractive regimes increasingly encroaching upon indigenous territories, and, you know, just the forest in general, communities are left with less and less land to work with, arable land. So what happens is really a crisis of design and of land management. So what permaculture offers, which is a technique that was designed, it was basically created in, in Tasmania in, in the 1970s, I think, is a way to work with the land, you know, that's not only creating constant yield, a permanent agricultural yield, but just actually leaving the land more healthy and more beautiful than people came upon it. And that's nothing new. I mean, indigenous technology and land management techniques have been doing that already. So what we do at Chaikuni is run these workshops or permaculture design courses and work together with communities to plan their dream landscapes, depending on what they need. You know, do you have to put a kid through college? Do you want to buy a car? Like, you know, depending on what their practical needs are and doing some long-term planning and say, well, how about you, you know, you plant this and how about you do that? And we work together and we create realities from these dream visions and we weave together traditional ecological knowledge with this modern permaculture techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And can we talk about the intersection of permaculture and ayahuasca and commodification? And because one of the things you bring up in the book is that, there's this boom, global boom of, of ayahuasca use and that these vines and, and the leaves have to be grown somewhere. And yeah. often people don't know where they're grown or, or they're being just kind of hacked out of the jungle. Yeah. I'm grateful you asked that question. <laughs> I think it's, if I have any contribution in this space, I really hope that we just talk more about sustainability and where these vines come from. 
So yes, in the Amazon, there is an increasing scarcity issue with ayahuasca. So the vine itself takes like five to 10 years to grow in order to be you know, harvested for medicine. So that's a pretty long time, actually. And what we see now is you know, the rate of extraction far exceeds the rate of production, which means that we actually end up seeing ayahuasca robbers, people going in the Amazon and cutting the vines down and going into people's private property. And in some cases, you know, I've heard several anecdotes from indigenous people from different communities who say that they used to be able to pick ayahuasca closer and now they need to go farther and farther out into the forest to retrieve, which is pretty tragic because, you know, for the people who the ayahuasca is being sold to, it's like a bucket list activity, right? Like, I'm just going to try ayahuasca versus for them, it's like truly an integral part of their worldview and their medicine system and their relationship to the nature and ancestors. So, you know, the stakes are much higher when their ability to access that is compromised. So another aspect that we're introducing with the Chaikuni, we call them chakras integrales. So as I mentioned, those are like the plots of land that are like the permaculture, traditional ecological knowledge, the combos. Um, We're also integrating an ayahuasca component there. So ayahuasca sells for much, much more than I think any crop regionally because there's a local market for it, right? So like people could plant coffee or uh, like cacao for chocolate, but you need a connection to an exporter, right? It does, it's not super valuable in that area. Versus ayahuasca, you could just go with a couple of kilos and you can go into the market and you can sell it right then and there. So it's very convenient for communities. So, you know, the yield is like ex, kind of like way more than yuca or plantain you're going to be getting. So, you know, our work with Chaikuni is you know, communities are interested in planting ayahuasca. So we do an agroforestry system. So it's agriculture and forestry. So we'll plant different fruit trees or valuable hardwood trees together with ayahuasca. And ayahuasca, like a vine, likes to grow up these beautiful trees. So they work together in partnership and, you know, harvesting them isn't going to like hurt the land and its own regenerative production. And, and if it's, you know, taken care of well, it can actually bring a lot of, you know, prosperity and well-being to communities if they opt in for it. So that's a long-term vision that you know, I think can be very, very well replicated by different people. And I think that any of you out there listening who might be thinking about planting ayahuasca, yeah, like, you know, ayahuasca likes to grow with other plants. It's a very social creature. So make it beautiful, make it make it diverse and make it really regenerative and, and leave the land better than you found it when you plant it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's a vision of utopia for me is... Right, yeah. <laughs> You know, support, like the land is healthy. The plants are healthy. They're supporting us. We're supporting them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's happening. Chakuni is helping that happen in the Amazon. Yeah. Currently. Yeah. So, you know, we, we appreciate the support. <laughs> Can't do it without donations. And yeah. And then, you know, many more interesting initiatives down the pipeline. Maybe you can interview me in like six months and I can share more. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, but specifically, you know, with regards to actually connecting the psychedelic community to these projects, you know, on a broader scale, how do we really transform the the whole cultural discourse around psychedelic and psychedelic healing, not from that individual perspective, but from one of interconnection and relationship to land and really, really 
rewiring the way that we humans see ourselves and therefore be in the world. And that's the next big thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm picturing, you know, the medicine that MAPS has gone through to great lengths to procure. I mean, that's a synthetic, but even if we think about medicinal marijuana being grown in big covered warehouses, very different vision once we get into that medical model. And so what it seems like to me needs to happen is medicine has to somehow get connected to the land. There's like a total disconnect there right now Yeah. in Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Like how much healing on a real deep cultural, structural, cellular level are you going to be able to do if the medicine that you're taking isn't healthy? If the medicine yeah. itself isn't healthy. Isn't happy. Yeah. Yeah. And these are plants. These are living beings we're working with. I'm obviously anthropomorphizing plants saying that they're healthy or happy or whatever. But I mean, you can see when a plant is like chilling or not chilling. Yeah. They're pretty like pretty <laughs> animated about it. So. Yeah. I want to touch on this Texaco Chevron disaster because most people, I mean, I'd never heard of this and I read about it in your book. So I'd love to for the sake of a PSA, and just so people know that this happened is happening. And can you tell us a bit about that and, and how that has impacted the Amazon and, and the Shaikuni? Yeah, great. So, wow, it's a heck of a story. It's almost one too crazy to believe, <laughs> but this is the world we live in. So, you know, the story that you're talking about, well, I guess I'll start about how I learned about it. So let's see, like seven, six or seven years ago, I went to the Ecuadorian Amazon for the first time. And I was very, very lucky to be connected to a community called the Sequoia, or they call themselves the Secopai. And the Sequoia, like many other indigenous communities in that region, used to be very prosperous. Some say they were even in the millions population-wise. <laughs> refer you to Graham Hancock's work here. <laughs> and, you know, like other indigenous cultures there, they've been for years decimated culturally, really, by successional generations of colonialism, Christianity, and capitalism. So I went there to work and learn about Yahé, which is what they call ayahuasca. And I had very, very profound experiences there, more than anything shaped by the environment, because I had driven through unending tracts of monoculture, palm oil fields, and seeing these like oil extraction, crazy looking extraterrestrial machines, and Chinese laborers in the middle of the Amazon rainforest wearing petroleum-soaked jumpsuits. It's just like the strangest dystopian vision to have. And, you know, it's not only like, oh, I just saw that. Like, you just drive it really fast. It's like, this is miles and miles and miles and miles. It's just like endlessly vast, these operations. So the beginning of this in terms of the oil situation was in 1964 when one of the oil wells broke and a company called Texaco, which is now owned and operated by Chevron, Chevron acquired it, basically, you know, didn't take care of the piping. And what happened was they had these open unlined oil pits. So just imagine huge lakes of crude petroleum. 
And petroleum has a very sneaky way of leaching into subsoil and then, you know, penetrating throughout entire ecosystems there. So what resulted was strange, you know, cancers in humans, animals dying. And even today, you know, there are sequoia who are born with abnormal limbs, respiratory infections, inexplicable cancers. And that happened in 1964. You know, I was there just a few years ago. So that oil doesn't go anywhere. And to this day, Chevron has not paid a penny towards it. I mean, maybe in legal fees defending the case, but it's been an absolutely like bloody legal battle. And actually, Stephen Donziger, one of the great environmental lawyers, he's been working on on behalf of the Sequoia and and these different communities that were affected. He's under house arrest now, you know, for this case, like like Chevron just flipped the thing over and, and made it a case about indigenous people trying to slander and frame the oil companies. And it's just a catastrophe. So, um, mm. I think of it like the Chernobyl of the Amazon, you know, it was the largest oil spill that ever happened in the region. And that was in Ecuador in, in Peru today, actually, the government has called several states of emergency because there are also these oil pipelines that are not maintained anymore. So the biggest thing to understand with these, you know, oil leaks is that it's not actually active oil sites that it happens at, but rather when the prices of oil fluctuate and there it's no longer profitable or lucrative to be extracting it in that region, let's say they, you know, the prices are better in the Middle East, those oil fields get abandoned. And so the, the pipes rust or I, I don't know the, the details of it, but things start to fall apart. And that's really when you can imagine at several points within one pipeline, it's just leaking and leaking, oozing out like blood from the center of the earth there. So pretty devastating stuff. It's very real. And I mean, I will do a shout out for an amazing organization called Amisacho. And they work in the Ecuadorian Amazon there. And they've been working with mushrooms, actually, different sorts of mushrooms to bioremediate so these mushrooms actually eat petroleum so yay mushrooms yeah thank you mushrooms our extraterrestrial mycelial friends coming to teach us how everything works yeah so amisacho is like doing some really cool stuff with mushrooms and you know but it's really about finding ways to make these remediation efforts lucrative for communities or even better to have the damn people who did it clean up, you know, and at this point, the damage is unquantifiable. And, you know, that region is really, really rough. But yeah, to tie it back, I mean, for me, seeing that and feeling that, you know, really swimming in those waters and just like understanding on a physical level, you know, with the medicine also, like I had ayahuasca ceremonies there where I, I was petroleum. I was just like, you know, like a duck in the black goo kind of thing. Really feeling that this medicine can teach us empathy, right? Like I am that. I feel it and I can, I will not tolerate it. And it's painful and it will put you through those disembodied experiences and it will put you into the body of another. Sometimes, anyway, I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> And that's really where my work 
began, you know, because before I was just interested in ayahuasca and healing and I found it culturally very fascinating. But then when I realized the stakes of the extracted of what's going on in the Amazon and just the decimation and the degradation caused, you know, largely by people who I work with, you know, friends of mine who work at in finance and stuff. I mean, it's not you can't point a finger at one person because it isn't a person. It's an energy and it's I, I blame no one, you know. Maybe I blame a few people, but, <laughs> but maybe some people are less sensitive to the impacts than others. And what is that? How would you put a pin on that energy? Would, yeah, what is that energy? Is it just the focus on commodification, focus on... Yeah, but it, you know, more than that, it's, I think the first thing is just a lack of relationship, a lack of being okay and knowing who your family is on earth. You know, and that's, to me anyway, in my infinite wisdom, I I don't know, my sense, yeah, is that any of that, like, drive to, you know, maximize shareholder value or commodify X or Y or make a bunch of money or whatever, all that stuff. It's just like, I don't know, maybe I believe too much in the goodness of humanity, but I don't think it would be so rampant if people were loved and if people felt connected and if people felt supported, you know, and it's the scarcity and this lack of understanding and relationship to the land that causes this vociferous appetite to consume and extract and accumulate. Yeah, I was thinking about it over the weekend. And I mean, this is a longer conversation, but the whole promise of capitalism, like Adam Smith wrote about this to by serving our own highest interests, we serve everybody else's interests, but we've somehow priced the life support system that we all rely on the earth out of the whole equation. So we've been on this collision course and it seems like now there's a cultural remembering that, Oh, we missed something 400 years ago during the enlightenment when we separated mind and body and we separated humans from the earth. So yeah, it does make me feel hopeful. Yeah. It's all in us. Like you said, remember it. I did my master's in a kind of obscure interdisciplinary environmental science called ecological economics, which is very interesting. And it's exactly what you were just saying. You know, it's looking at the quote unquote economy of things, right? So how do we place value on different substances? What are the different uh, power structures that inform our access to derive benefits from the natural elements? And just looking at like, you know, there's the economy with the numbers and the trades and the exchange and the valuation. And then there's what lies beneath, which is always earth in some form or another, you know, it's always, or, or human labor, which is earth because humans are earth beings, you know, and just like re shifting our perspective of value and, and relationship. Yeah. Ayahuasca will do that. Like, I mean, mushrooms will be you just like, I don't know if you've ever had psychedelics before and you look at some money and you're like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. It's an abstraction. It's a human idea. Yeah. You like pull crumpled bills out of your pockets and you're like, yeah, I mean, I guess here you go. <laughs> you know, you're like, totally have had that experience. It's a system. It works, you know, but I don't know. It serves as a purpose. But um, I definitely think that we have a lot of room for reforming our ways of valuing and, you know, measuring success like GDP, you know, super outdated. Like if we had some sort of an integrated index that included maybe like it balanced out, you know, the GDP would be offset by carbon emissions and then you would have to recalculate that success and just 
you know, there's so many infinite, you're in Bhutan, the happiness index. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, if we could, and I genuinely am not knowledgeable enough to know how that reform could truly happen and at a scale, you know, of a civilization like ours. But certainly, I think that there's a lot of promise in, in working in those areas. Yeah, you tell these stories in the book of these investment bankers who go down and they do an ayahuasca ceremony and they quit their jobs. And there's one gentleman who started a ayahuasca healing center that with a suspect shaman. And there's an, other stories of, I think it's called the assemblage in New York of a gentleman who committed to create something that supports people in the earth. So that gives me hope that I've heard enough stories of people feeling that reconnection after an ayahuasca experience that, yeah, you know, I, for myself, feel that this is one of the ways we can reconnect ourselves as a culture. And I hope that people are able to access it and, and have those kind of connective experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it should be duly noted that, yeah, I mean, you know, there are people, yes, people do change their lives and they do amazing things. And, you know, while I'm lucky enough to have the mic here, I think there's also spiritual bypass is very real, <laughs> you know, and it's very easy to start a big company and a big business and say, you know, ayahuasca did it. And therefore it sort of absolves anybody of any responsibility because it's like passed off to this supernatural plant entity. Like people literally do this, you know? <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's not ayahuasca it's the lessons that indigenous and forest people taught you you know and and keeping that acknowledgement and that remembrance alive in the work that we do i think is vital because otherwise you're just like kool-aid did it or you know it's like personally i'm not of the camp that believes that ayahuasca on its own is like the thing like i don't necessarily it's a portal and it's a tool you know but it's about who wields the tools that's important and that's going to shape the way that we work. Yeah. Yeah. How can people avoid spiritual bypass in your opinion? Oh my God. I mean, I'm figuring it out every day on my own. <laughs> <laughs> humility, I guess is great medicine, you know, humility and humility is not something that can be taught. I suppose it's just something that's learned through experience. And I know I've had my ass kicked enough times by the medicine to be humbled. And still, you know, sometimes I get on my high horse and I think I'm saving the world or I'm, I have, I don't know. I mean, just constant humility. And I do believe that working with, and again, this is a very unique context, but my work that I do with the plants, you know, dieting with these plants in the forest and really having to be real with myself, it just keeps things in check. Yeah. Yeah. And friends, you know, having friends and relationships that, you know, people that will tell you if you're being a jerk or if you're proselytizing some sort of a new age plant enlightenment on them. And they're like, listen, buddy, I'm not eating it. Like just, yeah. <laughs> you know, like just, yeah, surrounding yourself by honest people and friends. And I'm very grateful for that. People who will truly put me in my place whenever I get, you know, a little cocky or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Humility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were talking a bit before and you mentioned that you're you're starting a countrywide tour with Shane Mouse, who's a comedian. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Shane Moss. Oh, God, I love Shane. Well, Shane and I met. So Shane, to start, is <laughs> Shane, if you're listening, hi. <laughs> Shane is a comedian, and 
He communicates a lot about science and psychedelics. So he's done a bunch of different tours. He does two tours right now. One is called Stand Up Science, which was born from a really beautiful vision to actually, you know, raise the vibe of comedy nightlife. So my understanding was that I feel maybe he was a bit disillusioned by the nightlife and the drinking and the sex jokes or whatever. And then um, he started interviewing different scientists in different cities across the United States and then eventually invited them to come up on stage and do a lecture. And now his content is a lot about evolutionary biology and science. And he also did a tour called The Good Trip, which is all about psychedelics. And now we have a new show. Shane has a new show that I'm, you know, inaugurating and I hope to be participating in a whole bunch. And it's called Head Talks. So it's about psychedelics and science. Boom. Boom. Together at last. Wow. Can you imagine? <laughs> so psychedelic science. Um, yeah. So we begin next. Oh, geez. Oh, my God. On Thursday. So just a couple days away. And we're hitting Lincoln, Nebraska, Oklahoma City, um, Texas. We're going to Dallas and Austin, Wichita. And then we'll be hitting the South. So, you know, Tennessee, Georgia, a couple of other states in February and hopefully more. Yeah. And I'm super excited for the opportunity to just work with like, you know, audiences that are not maybe like exposed to this kind of stuff you know or it's like new york and los angeles and even boulder and these places there's like a saturation you know and like new age culture and every you're like you just go on the street and you're like yeah man i get you you know but to be communicating these ideas in a a place that i'm not from i'm really excited about that yeah yeah beautiful and how can people find out more about that well you can go to shane's website shanemoss.com and i guess there's a tab that says head talks there And from there, you'll see all of our dates and the different shows and the different... We'll also be joined by different scientists at different times. And yeah, and Shane and I will also be recording a couple of podcasts along the way for his his podcast, Here We Are. And we'll be going to the zoo and interviewing zookeepers about the cool projects happening with animals there. So really excited about that. Yeah, come on out if you can. Yeah, very cool. Hopefully, are you guys coming to Denver? It could be. Yeah. It's not immediately scheduled, but I I don't see why not. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So just a few minutes left. One thing that I appreciated about the book is you've got a user manual at the back of it for people who are maybe curious or interested to read and to understand some of the things to look out for, how to think about it. What would you want people to know who have maybe have an interest in ayahuasca or they're just hearing about it? You know, how do you think people should think about it and what would you want them to know, if anything? The first thing that comes to mind is take your time. Like, don't rush. I have the magical belief that, you know, the medicine will come to you when you are ready. Maybe, maybe not. That's my, that's a belief I subscribe to. And generally, like as a rule of thumb, you don't want to go to a ceremony with the first person who's like loudly advertising it. That's my hot take. That was the one near my house, interestingly enough. Yeah, it's like flyers uh, at the gas station. uh, Well, I did Vipassana. So I did a 10-day meditation retreat and somebody at the retreat was kept coming up to me. And, you know, after when we were allowed to speak. I was going to say during the retreat. (laughs) (laughs) But after trying to, you know, forcefully get me to come. So thank you for naming something that an experience I had that didn't feel right to me. Yeah. 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 And it's really like, I think with this stuff, you know, there's a tendency for psychonauts. I think it's like almost from the playbook, you know, like 
your friend is psychedelics and then they are enlightened and they need to make sure everyone is enlightened and they kind of force it upon people. But as you know, like when you're in those intense places with ayahuasca, like you really want to be sure that you yourself brought yourself there. Like you weren't pressured. Nobody told you to go. You're going because you on a deep soul level were ready for the unknown. And I think that that, you know, confidence and your experience will be, I mean, it's just an entirely different experience. I think no one should force anybody to do ayahuasca. And I certainly hope, I mean, despite my like talking about it a lot, I would never evangelize or preach about having to take ayahuasca because it's just not for everybody. You know, I don't think that everyone needs to do it. Having said that, if you are interested, you know, in the user's manual, we write a little bit about, you know, setting an intention, really checking in and saying, why am I here? What am I doing here? Am I just here to, you know, pardon my French, like fuck off and just see some stars? Or am I really here to work on some trauma or on some unknown landscapes of my experience in this life? So it's good to check in on that. And yeah, and if you can, you know, I mean, then this is where things start to get a bit interesting. And this is where I like to think of it as like, bridge building or world creation or integration. It's like checking in and knowing, you know, do I have friends and family or any kind of support network that I can talk to and I can relate with if I do have a powerful experience with this stuff? And I think some of the challenges and, you know, root spaces for innovation that we have in this world really is, you know, is in the integration space. It's like some people have super powerful experiences and then they just don't know how to translate it or talk to anybody about it. And then you begin to feel isolated and weird and have a hard time. And that's where things can get a bit shaky. And a friend of mine, his name is Mark Eshala, and he works at ICER. So beautiful nonprofit, International Center of Ethnobotanical Education and Research Services. <laughs> ben was on their last episode, so you can check that out. Amazing. Good. Wonderful organization. Amazing mission. Beautiful people. Mark once said to me that the future of integration was that there's no integration at all, meaning that there's nothing to integrate with. It's like life itself is already integrated and your community is already integrated and your life is already integrated. So if you are, you know, thinking about ayahuasca, are you looking for change? And you can even begin to have that conversation and that perspective without drinking this stuff, you know, and just exploring that and working on it like that. Yeah. So I would recommend anybody can read the user manual <laughs> in the book. I really enjoyed writing that little bit. Yeah. I thought that was fun. And I wrote it and I was like, gosh, I wish that this is something I knew eight years ago. You know, I wish that these were things that I was aware of before. So yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, the book When Plants Dream is available everywhere. I recommend it. It's an incredible tour through the physical world of ayahuasca, the cultural, the psychic, the emotional world of ayahuasca. So thank you for writing it, Sophia. And please, if you're listening and you're interested, yeah, go out and, and read it. It'll bring you up to speed in a way that, I, you know, I wish I had read it six months ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you seem good. You're up to speed, man. I'm up to speed now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Great. Well, any final thoughts or words or and I'd love also for you if, if there's places where people can go to learn more about you. Well, I would, I would first, you know, recommend checking out the Chaikuni Institute. 
and the Temple of the Way of Light. If you are interested in, you know, going into the jungle, if you have that opportunity, wholeheartedly recommend doing your retreat over there. And Chaikuni, you know, if you are running, like if you're having a party next week and you want to donate a portion of, you know, ticket entries to that, like it's really cool to help reforest the Amazon and doing it in this really cool and funky way, you know. So please, you know, support. And if it's not us, like small, you know, nonprofits that are run in intercultural context that's like truly the future of creation and of that utopia that I was talking about earlier yeah and if you can you know if we're coming to a city near you check out head talks with Shane Moss it's going to be super funny and weird yeah and then you know you can follow me on all of the instagrams and the twitters and things Sophia Rockland and I'm usually just writing about plants and people so (laughs) yeah Great. Well, Sophia, thank you so much. This was, uh, I loved our conversation and I hope that uh, a lot of people hear it and that it helps us move forward. Always. Yeah. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Great. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Will again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Evolving Earth podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a couple reminders before we leave. The first one is remember this episode is brought to you by Get Funded, my signature program to help entrepreneurs raise the money they need to build the companies that will change the world. You can check that out at www.foundersgetfunded.com. And I look forward to seeing you there. Lots of free resources over there. And then lastly, the humble request to please leave a review and a rating for this podcast in the podcast distributor where you found it or where you consumed it. Those reviews and ratings really help more people find our community and get involved in these types of conversations. So much love to you for that. Appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. Mm